1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a fierce competitor on this season of Tournament of Champions, making restaurant-quality cooking accessible at home. She is a chef, instructor, and cookbook author. It's Nini Wynn. Nini, welcome to the podcast. How have you
2: been? I've been really well. Thank you for having me. I've been doing a a lot of different things. Yes, you have.
1: Yes, you have. Yeah, I worked with Eric Ajapong recently. We were reminiscing about Ilene Brewfest, which was almost exactly four years ago. And as you kind of just alluded to, you have been a busy lady since then. And I'm so excited to dive into everything that you've been up to. But first of all, congratulations on making the qualifiers for season five of Tournament of Champions, which premieres this weekend. What was it like? Competing for a slot in the East
2: Coast qualifier? I would have to say it was scary at first, but it was so much fun. Yeah. I've never competed in that kind of way. And the randomizer is evil, like equal parts evil and hilarious. <laughs> like, I'm like, am I really doing this? Is this really? And then you have to go. Yeah. And, but it was so much fun. I think it's like kind of a dream. I've mm-hmm. watched Food Network. All my life. And so it was really surreal, but it was, it, I got to meet so many cool people and it was just a really terrific experience. Was that your first time meeting Guy? Yes. What were your impressions? Oh my goodness. He has the best memory. Yes. Oh my goodness. Like he's such a kind person and he's pretty funny. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) And you mentioned the randomizer. So I can assume that that you feel that it is just
2: as daunting as it looks on TV. When you're sitting comfortably on your couch watching something, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll totally do this, this, this. When you're there with like an audience and just like all the lights, you're Mm -hmm. just like a deer in headlights and you're just like, what is happening to me right now?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are so excited to see you compete and see how far you go. What was the one lesson that you took away from the entire experience?
2: Don't plan anything. Really? (laughs) Like, I think when you go in, I guess like every chef has like their like, like recipe recipe not recipes, but like a list of things that they do really well. Mm -hmm. And you could have that, but you have to be very nimble Mm -hmm. when competing on this, like, I don't know. This format. Yeah. Yeah. This format. I'm like, it's not a game. (laughs) Definitely not a game. It's a competition. Fierce competition. Yeah. It's crazy. And I think everyone's going to At least I hope I'm I'm entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling you will be.
1: (laughs) Well, we are so excited to, to see how it all unfolds because I feel like, you know, this is one of those competitions that just keeps getting bigger and more grand and more competitive each season. So season five, on deck this weekend and we're so excited to see how it all plays out. But I kind of want to take everything back before we get into your present, you know, culinary status. Let's take a step back and chat about where it all began. What is your earliest food memory?
2: I would say my earliest food memory is, of course, it's going to be like super cliche, Mm -hmm. but it's with my grandma. Surprise. Yeah. (laughs) Like every chef. But I think it was going to the farmer's market with her. And when I say farmer's market, I'm not thinking like cute Union Square farmer's market. (laughs) I'm thinking like unregulated, just like Vietnamese people, ice on the ground with like tons of seafood and vegetables and a butcher and everyone's just yelling. Like it's not like, it's not like calm, but going to the farmer's market with her and buying things and she was always very particular. She had really high standards. And, and then making like a meal with her for the family on the weekends. We would always make something special. Hmm. I think that's probably my earliest food memory.
1: Is there a particular maybe like meal or recipe or dish from your grandmother that you find yourself kind of recreating or incorporating into your culinary creations today?
2: Yeah. Well, my grandmother is a very talented cook and she is really good at pickles. But I think another thing that she used to make that she would sell at the markets were these like rice, like steamed rice crepes called bank mm. one. And, um, and luckily I got to like sit and practice. She showed me how to do it. She, you, like you steam it on a piece of fabric. Oh, okay. And so she, sh- she sewed a piece of fabric just for like my pot. And we got to like spend a weekend making it. And I think that is my one of my favorite things. And it's such a to do it the old school way is so old school and like kind of hard, but it yields the best, the thinnest crepes. You talk about these
1: Vietnamese roots and these memories. And but you're also a New Orleans native where there is, you know, quite the Vietnamese community there. But I imagine that the the culinary influences are very intertwined between, you know, your Vietnamese heritage and also Creole cuisine. Can you kind of share some vivid early memories or experiences that, that
2: stand out of that? Yeah, I think I talk about this a lot. And as an adult, I try to map out. Like the reasoning of like why Vietnamese people came to New Orleans particularly. Mm-hmm. And it's because it reminds them of home. From the climate, it's hot. <laughs> From the architecture, like in some areas of Vietnam, it looks like France. Mm-hmm. And in New Orleans, it does too. So there's some f- familiarity. But I could think of like Café Du Monde coffee. That mm-hmm. is the coffee of Vietnamese people. Like we make our coffee. Um, Cafe Sada, which is our Vietnamese coffee with sweet condensed milk Mm. on ice with Cafe Du Monde coffee. Beignets is like one thing that we really love and that's the cross. Like we have ours with um, sesame seeds. I feel really lucky that I have two different types of cuisines that I could really pull from. I feel like that's kind of my unique style now that I'm like a chef and I've cooked for a while now. And that I think that's what people know me for. What, what was the moment,
1: though, in your life where you kind of felt this pull towards cooking professionally?
2: So I started as a pastry cook and I was in college. My family was like, go to school, try to, like, get a real job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, all right, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. College. Cool. Last year of college, I'm in business school. I go to this bakery called Sucre and I walk in and it was the cutest like store. Everything was pastel. They had all these like French desserts, like entremets and macaroons and chocolate. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is it. I want to be a chef and I want to be a pastry chef. And so I got fixated on it and I just (laughs) knew I was like, well, I graduated in like 20 2009 and nobody was getting a real job at that time the market had just yep. crashed. I was like I'm getting paid more to like serve tables than I would in entry level in marketing. And so I was like sure I'm just going to I'm just going to go for it. I did I grad I finished college cuz I I was so close. I was like mm-hmm. I'm going to do this for the family. <laughs> and then I'm going to go and I enrolled in culinary school for a semester in New Orleans. And then I quickly learned that I didn't have to really go to culinary school. It's not a waste of money, but if you really love cooking or if you really want to learn how to cook, go work at restaurants. They'll pay you to teach you how to cook <laughs> and you can pick who you learn from. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, where like I think my like, 22-year-old self, I was like, Thank you for making some really good decisions, and I had no clue. I I didn't know what I was doing, but I was lucky, and I knew what I wanted, and I worked for really good people, and yeah, it's kind of it's kind of wild because I was like dumb,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and yet and yet wise beyond your years apparently. <laughs> yeah,
2: who, who knew? <laughs>
1: Who are who are some of those people that you chose to learn from?
2: So, working at Sucré, there was a pastry chef Tark um who like fundamentals, they cranked out so many different desserts and confections and and I was lucky enough they hired me to kind of float between all the stations. And they quickly realized that I love efficiency. So then I would go in and I would like make every station more efficient. And in return, I got a crash course on how to like produce so many different desserts or techniques that I would not have learned if I were to do it at like a restaurant where it was at a smaller scale. So Mm. I would like I was a toffee queen. I didn't even need a thermometer. I could make toffee like blindfolded. And so I really honed in on those skills. And then I worked at a restaurant called Coquette uh, here in New Orleans. And it had been no- nominated for James Beard. And when I was there, it was like, everyone was young. Everyone was really fun. We partied probably way too much. But <laughs> um, we were all, it was very experimental. Farmers would come with, and bring po- produce on their trucks and we would just pull what we liked. Mm. And then we would make the weirdest stuff. But it was delicious. I don't know. I would make like praline duck skin and then or like I would make like weird desserts Mm -hmm. or like components. And then if I didn't like it for dessert, then the savory crew would be like, we'll use it as a crumble for like this dish. And so that's where I became really good friends with my friend Mason Hereford. He is like the sandwich king, turkey and the wolf. Mm. and he would always take the things I didn't like. I'm like, I messed this up. He's like, we're going to turn into something good. <laughs> and that was a really cool experience. So I got to learn how to make like plated desserts. There was a really great pastry chef, Zach Miller, who just came from New York. And I knew that if I wanted to move to New York, I had to get some restaurant experience. And I was like, this is the perfect person. He Mm -hmm. just came from New York. He's making like Michelin star type desserts. I want to learn everything from him. And then when, so having like Tark and him, so I had like production can make anything, chocolate, sugar, all of it. And then going into a restaurant world, I was well equipped to go to New York. And then I worked at 11 Madison Park. I just pretty much told you my resume. No, I love it.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Bury the lead there. You know, you. oh, I worked at 11 Madison Park. You know, like that's (laughs) like,
2: it's like no big deal, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's just a fancy restaurant. Like my mom didn't even know what it was. She's like, what's that? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, it's nothing.
1: (laughs) It's nothing. No big deal, mom. Don't worry about it. As you were beginning this journey as a pastry chef, I'm curious to know if there were any standout early creations that really kind of hold a special place in your culinary repertoire today?
2: I would say, I'm trying to think I, it would, if I had to pick something, it would be like a modernization of like Vietnamese desserts because Mm. they have such a unique texture. And so trying to elevate that, um, I did a couple like earlier on that I really love and sometimes it will like show up on menus, but I don't get to like exercise that side of my brain as much anymore these days.
1: No, but you all are exercising different parts as well, especially as you've been kind of sharing your culinary knowledge with others as a cooking instructor. What, what inspired you to kind of take on that role?
2: I've always loved teaching, like from teaching line cooks, how to do things properly and show them like, oh, what to look for, when did you mess up and how to change that. It's just like what excites me the most. And I also, right before like I did Top Chef, I was teaching, I developed a cooking school in Brooklyn called Cookspace And I was mm-hmm. a culinary director and I got to teach like normal people how to cook like restaurant level food. And I, that's really my passion. This is what I really want to do. And I love, and then Top Chef came on. My second season was during the pandemic. So it was like the most viewed Top Chef season because everyone (laughs) was at home and everyone had to figure out like restaurants are closed. Now we have to figure out how to cook. And here I am. I'm like, I've been teaching people for a while. I turned it into like virtual classes. And I think that's really where I tapped in to my Vietnamese cooking. I was like, I'm going to teach people how to make Vietnamese food, make it a lot easier. And I, I didn't think so many Vietnamese people would it like join because I'm like, they have their moms or aunts or whatever. So many people joined and it was really touching. And I just, it's probably the best thing I've done in my career is like, my virtual cooking classes. Now I feel like I have friends all over the world and it's just, it's really satisfying. What's so
1: satisfying about that moment where you can kind of see the light bulb go off for somebody, you know, like learning to yeah. to master something or at least do something for the first time.
2: I think because I did it on Zoom, I got to see people's kitchens. So like sometimes we would have like pastries, I would have cream puffs, And everyone's oven is different. So then I would be like, okay, once your timer goes on, like put your camera right by the oven, open it up really quick. And I'll tell you if you need to adjust your oven temperature, like if you see this, lower it down or keep it higher. And I got to like, I feel like it's like yoga. Whenever the yoga instructor comes and like fixes your posture, like Mm -hmm. I got to do that with people. And then people would be so excited because they would make, it looked just like mine with the equipment that they have. And so then everyone would post it and they're like, you made that. And so like, (laughs) and I just, I don't know. It's just so satisfying getting people really excited.
1: Coming up next, we learn Nini's secret skill and her sound advice for anyone starting out
2: in the kitchen.
0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
1: We talked about your resume and, and you've cooked and worked for all these amazing people. How do you kind of strike that balance between empowering people to make these restaurant quality dishes at home, but also still making it accessible to them and not scary, I guess.
2: I think one thing I really like to encapsulate in my classes is to sh- like, let people know that you have taste. like everybody has their own taste and, you know, make things the way you like to eat it. Don't fixate on the recipe or whatever, like you taste it. And if you like it, then it's going to be great. I think like food is just food and it's not really that hard. Like, yes, there are some things that are like crazy with chemicals and stuff like that. But the food that I really like to make is kind of everyday food, just with a little bit of pizzazz, I like to say. (laughs) But... I don't know. I think that might be like my secret skill is being able to kind of, uh, not necessarily dumb it down, but make it way more approachable for the home cook to understand, and just mm-hmm. using like simple terms and and just being very descriptive.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if there's somebody out there listening right now that's you know hesitant to to get in the kitchen and and really you know try their hand at cooking, what advice do you have for just starting off and building that confidence?
2: I would say. I had a whole like cooking with confidence like series, but I would say that I would just experiment. What's the worst that can happen? You're going to experiment. If it doesn't taste that great, it's still going to be edible and it's going to be fine. I think the more you practice, the better you'll get. And I used to make really disgusting things as a kid. Like (laughs) when I first started cooking or trying to cook. Oh man, I felt bad for my parents. I'd be like, look what I made, y'all. And and sometimes it would be good. Some, and that's like what kept me going, but sometimes it would be real bad. And I, and you know, I would be like, I'm not going to do that again. Um, and you just have to. You know, I guess it kind of is with, with life. Like some people, they just like don't want to do it unless they're going to like be the best as soon Mm. as they like touch a spatula. But that's not the case. You're no one is that talented. Like you have to make a lot of gross things before you start making delicious things. And as long as you learn from it, you're only going to get better and your food's going to get better. Absolutely. I am i
1: couldn't agree more because I think even if you've been cooking for a long time, you can still make one mistake and it's, you know, it's gross or it's not as good as, you know, like you were hoping it would turn out. But I think that that's good advice to just, you know, keep going and and see what happens, you know, as my as my boyfriend likes to say, you know, break things and then put them back together. Kind of. thing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I mean, I've been cooking for a long time and sometimes I make some gross things. Don't tell my competitors, though. I make delicious stuff every <laughs> time. So be scared. But I do. I mess I mess things up sometimes. Yeah. No, I think that that's <laughs> definitely a good A good thing to
1: keep in mind. And, you know, another thing that I love about, you know, following your adventures is how much you do love to travel and seems like a lot of those travels really, you know, influence a lot of your cooking. And you describe going to Vietnam for the first time as kind of this culinary aha moment. Can you share more about that trip and the moment where everything kind of clicked for you?
2: So I have to kind of take a step back. My mom's family Mm-hmm. Is originally from the north. They moved to the south of Vietnam in the 50s. And so, and that's the grandmother I'm the most closest to. And so I speak Vietnamese with a northern accent, but my dad's side is from the south. And so I never understood why both grandmas, like they had their own versions of the dishes. And some dishes one had, some the other didn't. And it didn't make sense until i got to vietnam and i was like oh i get it now some of the terms some of the dishes some of their flavor profiles and it's like the it's so hard for me to like kind of describe but it it just made like everything made sense like you see like your whole life and you're like oh my god like you know it's like a thriller at the end where you know you figure out all the little things and uh-huh. it all like Maps out and you're like, oh, that's how it felt like when I went to Vietnam. I was like, oh, like the in the south, it's a little spicier, a little sweeter because of all the coconuts, the lime, and like in the north, it's more like spice, bit vi- not spice, like salty vinegar base and herbs, and just I feel like a little bit more like Chinese influence. Mm. And and so it was really eye opening. And it was just a wonderful experience that I feel very, very lucky to have had. I've been to Vietnam twice. Are
1: there specific, you know, bites of food or dishes that you experienced during either of those trips that like still stick with you?
2: Everything I ate in Hue. So Hue is in central Vietnam. Okay. And we don't see that in, a lot in America. So like in America, we are more familiar with South Vietnamese food, where you have pho with the hoisin sauce and sriracha, whereas in the North, they don't have that. And and in Hue, it's like the central, like, that's a dialect like no one in Vietnam understands. Like they really? they, they speak completely. Like we're like, are we specific? speaking the same language, but the food is incredible. That's where the emperor used to live. And so they would have all these like very intricate dishes, like dumplings and clams and spicy soups. And like everything in that region is kind of my favorite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did either of these trips like inspire specific changes or innovations in your own personal
2: approach to your cooking? Yes, I think there are a lot of food trends in Vietnam because it's a kind of a younger um, population. Mm. And so there was a lot of fun things to eat in the street. And I've gotten to like take that home because like I'm like, I've never seen like grilled rice paper with like meat and like mayonnaise and all this stuff, like cheese sometimes. It was like kind of like an afternoon snack kind of food. Mm -hmm. And So that was really fun and seeing things that I just had never seen before and bringing it back. But there are some food cities like Houston, Texas, that really keeps up with all the like food trends in Vietnam. So, So I like to go there too. Mm. If I can't make it to Vietnam.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of which, we are thrilled about your upcoming cookbook, Doc Biet. And for anybody who is not familiar, I guess first of all, can you share what that means in Vietnamese and why you chose it for your debut book?
2: Yeah, Doc Biet means like it could mean a, a variety of things. So what you most people might see if they've ever eaten pho pho duck beat is pho with everything. So it could mean with everything. It could mean the special. It could mean distinguish. So like if you wanted to elevate something, this is the more premium, more duck beat version. And then in Vietnamese American slang, it's like if you're being extra, you're being duck beat. And so <laughs> so I felt like it was like everything that encapsulates me. Like I am duck beat. I am as duff beat as you can be. And I think that my food is also very Dac Biet. And so I'm just very happy that I got to have like a Vietnamese title because like, I don't think it fully registers when you see Dac Biet. Like that doesn't really necessarily scream like that's a Vietnamese cookbook.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what inspired you to embark on this cookbook journey in the first place?
2: It, it was really the, the Vietnamese people who came to my cooking classes. Mm. I would always ask like, why, why did you come? Or, or people would ha- like pour so much love to me afterwards. And they're like, it was either like they might've lost their parents or they have a language barrier or their parents won't teach them because they want them to like better assimilate into this country. But everyone wanted to have a connection with their heritage and a lot of the Vietnamese cookbooks that you see in the bookstores are all in English. They don't really ha- have the Vietnamese titles, and I thought that was very important to to make sure that like the dishes that I made are tied to like our heritage. And if they didn't, then it doesn't have a Vietnamese title. But you know, I don't know how to say jambalaya in Vietnamese. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I felt like it was very important, and I I think just like the language a lot of Vietnamese Americans don't speak Vietnamese i anymore I wanna keep it alive, and so a lot of the dishes that you might see are very popular dishes, but then there's also like the like Tuesday night your mom's lazy meal like I have those kind of meals in the book too, and I think it's because we've all kind of had like similar. I don't know. There's like one where I'm thinking of it's like steamed cabbage and then like a soft boiled egg with like a fish sauce, dipping sauce, and like you eat it with rice. And it's like the easiest, cheapest meal. But everyone's moms made that when she was like too tired and she's like, I can't, I can't make dinner. Like this is dinner. And yeah, I I it's really to just make sure Vietnamese food doesn't die. Yeah. I mean, you
1: mentioned jambalaya as well. So I guess safe to assume that there's there is a a blend of what we were talking about earlier, some Vietnamese and some New Orleans cooking. Is there a specific dish that kind of encapsulates that for you in the book? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. You
2: know, I come from New Orleans and I mm-hmm. could not, not of sneak like a little bit of New Orleans <laughs> in. So like, and like Viet Cajun food has become so popular as of recent. So, so I do have like a Viet Cajun boil and then I have a jambalaya, like a seafood jambalaya with that taste like both. It tastes like jambalaya, but then it's like lemongrass and Thai basil mm. and like very Southeast Asian. And so it's pretty, there's some nods, you know, like yeah. we have like a po' boy by me bread. They, they're they very similar bread. So, mm. so there's like a cross between that two. It's mo- majority a Vietnamese cookbook, but in the eyes of someone who grew up on the Gulf coast. Okay. I love that. I wanted to ask you about your nails as well,
1: because I know that that was, you know, an aspect that you really wanted to include in the book. Why was that so important to you?
2: I think I wanted it's this book is really like, to me, a celebration of Vietnamese culture and like the Vietnamese American culture, like what I know, what I've grown up with and the industries that Vietnamese people in America really kind of dominate, I guess, Mm -hmm is the nail industry and the seafood industry. So like half of my family, my grandma shucked oysters, my uncles made crab traps, my dad deep sea fish. So like there's like the seafood side and then my mom, my aunts, my grandma, my dad's side, they all do nails. <laughs> and, and it was something that we were really kind of ashamed of. You didn't need an education, but it made a decent living and everyone kind of taught each other how to do it and like open their nail salons. And I think that it's so mainstream now to have like the coolest nails and all this stuff. And I really don't think that we should be ashamed of it. Like I always thought if I didn't finish school, there was always nails that I could do. Luckily, I found another job that (laughs) my parents probably- Another artistic, you know, field. (laughs) Yeah. But the, but nails are really important and I kind of want to- scream and shout and say like we don't need to be ashamed and it is like artistry and we should be really proud that this is kind of our contribution to like mainstream culture and it's like having really cool nails. I have really cool nails right now. It's for Lunar New Year. Y'all can't see it but I have like dragons and lotus flowers on my nails and it's just it's kind of cool to see the thing that like my mom was so ashamed of be cool to Mm -hmm. do and like celebrate it. And so I, this is a book to kind of celebrate her. That's amazing.
1: Do you do your own nails or, or do you have friends or family take care of that, that portion? (laughs) I don't do my
2: own nails anymore. And I'm too particular. <laughs> I'm too particular to let my family do it because they're going to be like, I can't stand when Nini comes. <laughs> but, uh, so I pay to get my nails done now. My mom's always like, you should come here and I'll do it. And I was like, no, because then if I'm like, it's crooked, she's going to be like, no, it's not. Your finger's crooked. And then we're going <laughs> to have a fight. So for the sanity of our, and our, to save our relationship, I do get my nails done with my friend Jane, she does my nails and she does crazy stuff.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm <laughs> she, excited to see all the all the imagery in, in the cookbook of that, but also the food. Do you have any recipes in the book that you're, you know, particularly excited for readers to try?
2: I mean, I like all of it, really. <laughs> I think I can't like there, I guess. I should have prepared for this because this is always a question, like, is there a recipe that you love the most in your book? And I'm like, I love all of it. Probably like your equally. children. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I think if I really had to pick one, it would be like my comfort food. Whenever I would come home, it's the most simple dish that you could make in like 30 minutes. I actually, I think you might've made it with me on, on past- one of the zoo. Is it the no. beef rib? No, it's ginger and chicken. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Like, that's like the easiest thing. You can whip it up in 30 minutes. And it's something my mom always makes. And it's what I ask for from my mom. Mm -hmm. That might be my the easiest and like most delicious. And people are always like, I make that once like a week or two, you know, two times a month now. Mm -hmm. I think that could be I'm going to have to really think on that. No,
1: but you know what? Actually, now that you mentioned that I need to like revisit that one as well, because I remember all of those things that you just said that it was super flavorful, very easy and very much lends itself to like a weeknight meal that's in your rotation constantly. So, yeah, I think that was a good answer. So maybe keep that one. All right. I have to ask one last question because people listening probably did not get a chance to hear your little roommate piping in throughout this interview, but your dog Tofu Tell us about him, and, and does he ever get to enjoy any of your culinary creations?
2: Tofu is four years old. He's a white, crusty-eyed dog who <laughs> barks too much, but he 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 actually hates when I cook. Really, like, this is like where my feelings get hurt the most. Is <laughs> you know, everyone's dogs always oh, like they're they're always like right at your foot, you know, when you're cooking because they want to eat tofu hates it he hates when the like I'm cooking anything if the stove's on he will move to the other room and like or the furthest room or like by the front door when uh, we were in our like New york apartment and I would take it so personal <laughs> I would take it so per- I'm like what Kind of dog is this? He doesn't even want to eat my cooking, and he's like, if he only knew his mom was a chef, right? He doesn't. If he care. only knew how good he had it. I know. <laughs> he does not care.
1: All right. Well, tofu is not like your food, but I'm sure everybody is going to be so excited to dive into this cookbook and start enjoying all these creations, even if tofu is not a fan. So <laughs> congratulations on the cookbook. We're looking forward to seeing that come out. And of course, seeing how you do on Tournament of Champions. We're going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you. All right. Rapid fire questions. Secret to the perfect martini.
2: I am martini. <laughs> I would say for me, I'm a gin martini. I like it dry. It's only my martini is only. Two ingredients, and it's a Japanese vermouth and a Japanese gin Roku, and then Vermudo, I think, is what the vermouth is called. But it, that's like to me my favorite combo for the martini and a twist. Yeah, I'm not. I love olives, but I don't like it all. You olive want a twist? In my, in your, yeah, I love it. Yeah.
1: I love Roku as well. All right, describe the randomizer in one word.
2: Troll. <laughs> it is a troll. It's, it's a troll. troll. I was like, I was like, hilarious. No, but like, trolls can be
1: funny. That's actually <laughs> really a great word. Favorite song on your cooking playlist
2: right now? Probably anything. Bad Bunny. Okay. Or bad <laughs> this is what my friends would always say. But
1: yeah, <laughs> your go-to
2: comfort meal. I. It would be a. This is a weird dish, but it's something my grandma always makes whenever it's in season, but it's eggs, like fish eggs in the sack, Mm -hmm. simmered with caramelized like pork belly. Okay. And mustard greens. Like that's my death row meal.
1: Yum. I love that. Okay. Well, that might be part of your last question as well, but we'll get there in a second. (laughs) Easiest
2: pottery project for beginners. I love that y'all know that I did pottery, but I would say hand building, like making plates, just like if you can make a sheet of clay, You can make a plate. Mm, All right. Favorite New Orleans spot? I just recently went to like an old institution. It's called Clancy's. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a neighborhood New Orleans Orleans restaurant. Like a really. And it's so good. I went the first time in December and now I'm like mad that I didn't go sooner. But (laughs) that's probably my favorite spot right now.
1: All right. I'm putting that on the list for my next trip. Go-to sauce.
2: Go to sauce. I guess it would be nuoc mam. Nuoc mam Cha is like what most people know. It's a Vietnamese condiment with like lime, chilies, mm. garlic, sugar, and fish sauce. And it's literally our ketchup. Like we put it on everything,
1: <laughs> but but like way better than ketchup. So yes,
2: so better than ketchup. I mean, I like ketchup. I'm team ketchup. too. I mean, I love ketchup I mean, also. But yeah, I'm but... team like any condiment really. But but that's. Yeah, that's the one. It goes well with everything.
1: All right. Okay. Our final question. This is the question we ask everybody at the end of our interviews here on Food Network Obsessed, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want you to take us through you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. This question has no rules. So obviously calories don't count. You can travel. You can time travel. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want. We just want to hear... If there were no restrictions, what your ideal food day would look like?
2: Okay, I would wake up and probably have pho. Pho is actually a breakfast Breakfast. food. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if I'm hungover, I want pho. Like, do not (laughs) talk to me until I have pho. It's like, it's a very soothing, healing Mm -hmm. soup. So, pho for breakfast. If I were to really have lunch, it would either be like a bowl of really delicious pasta. Mm-hmm. Or a po' boy, a shrimp po' boy to okay. be exact. It dinner, it would probably. I don't know. This is hard. He's like <laughs> I'm like, I want Mexican food or mm. Mexican. food. Well, you can have you can have,
1: you have multiple things again. There's no I rules, know. so you
2: can kind of roll a bunch of things into one. If you I want, I wish you could eat everything. I can't pick because I'm also a very indecisive person. But <laughs> same. But I would say, I mean. I, I love Vietnamese food, so I would probably just have like a traditional Vietnamese meal where it's like rice is our basic. Everybody has a bowl of rice. And then we have like a meat, a fish, a vegetable, a soup, some pickles. And it's just like you are your own chef and you get to like pick and choose what your next bite is. Like to me, that is the best way to eat. And I usually eat way too much <laughs> in like a good way. Yeah. And then... For dessert, I would have a crème brûlée. Mm. I'm perfect. simple. Yeah, simple, <laughs>
1: sweet, little sweet ending to a perfect day. So thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your story. And again, best of luck with all of your exciting endeavors this year.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun and I can't wait for everyone to watch. You
1: can check out Nini on Tournament of Champions starting February 18th on Food Network. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.